some of the some of the some of the way that you program that base is like technically impossible. Here's an idea. Your web browser is replacing the art gallery. I don't know about you guys, but when I'm in the mood to see some visionary, super new visual art, I think to myself, let's go to the gallery. And not, let's stay in the kitchen and sit at the computer in our pajamas. But the fact of the matter is that many of the art world's best, newest, and most challenging artworks are viewable only on the internet. Since the mid-18th century, we've been going to galleries and museums to view artworks. Like, real locations in meat space where you can eat cheese and touch people and fall down and stuff. There's some kind of hard-to-explain feeling you get when you're standing in front of something you know Renoir actually painted. This feeling is really elusive and hard to recreate without actually being there. And this has always been the importance of the gallery. It provides a place where the art world can coalesce. It brings all of the newest, greatest art thinkers together and gives the public a place to lose their shit over the newest Rauschenberg or a Brillo box. But now, a lot of the most interesting and challenging stuff has moved out of the gallery. A place which is probably not near where you live, and to the internet, which is here, right now, in front of you. The new hotness in the arts isn't hanging on a wall somewhere really hard to get to, it's chilling on a server just a few tippity taps away. I don't actually type like this. I type like this. Stuff like hypergeography, a Tumblr which isn't so much a blog as it is a visual cacophony of... Oh my god. Takeshi Murata's Pink Dot, which turns Rambo into a seething, drippy mess of video. Or John Rathman's Nine Eyes, which presents Google Street View photos as portraits and landscapes and candid photos. These are all works which are not only amazing and arresting, but also don't need a gallery. Sure, Ryan Trey Carton, Olia Leolina, Evan Roth are all internet artists who've had their awesome internet artworks shown at real museums. Like real real, like you could eat cheese there real. Well, you didn't have to go there, because these works also live online. Hello everybody, this is just going to be a very short clip on the fate of the Tom Cheese. <laughs> I know a lot of people have watched my video on the making of the Tom cheese and now I've been off with the aging process where you were supposed to brush it daily and turn it and that worked well for well, over two weeks and then things started to go wrong. Uh, it started to leak like a, I don't know, like a thick white cheese coming out of it and then some of the edge of it came away. I don't know exactly what the problem was, but I, no way we, we, could you continue with what I was doing and, and eat the thing. So I have disposed of it. I'm going to take down the Tom video, because like I said, I don't know for sure what I did wrong. Uh, there wasn't any link to the recipe that came out of a book, but I wouldn't want somebody to follow what I did and have the, have the same luck. I'm thinking it had to do with the weight of the cheese. Whatever, it's the internet, I don't care. Everything is everyone's. When you put something on the internet, it's mine. And this goes for images, tweets, videos, any, anything. I'll, I'll take it and um, make it mine. Thank you. A terrified baby boomer collapses inside of the white cube, screaming. 
waterfalls of liquid cheese begin to cascade from overhead track lighting. Drowning now in the unruly curds of dangerous dairy, the baby boomer lets loose a piercing wail. Dear God! They cry out. Dear God, why have you forsaken my gallery? Swirling ones and zeros surround them, as a new generation of artists dial into the matrix. Imagine it. Streaming video. Interactive web pages. Ironic social media accounts. It is a new frontier. Millennial cowboys ride across unpredictable deserts, firing their weapons of code into star-filled skies. The baby boomer is the West. The baby boomer will be conquered. Gross. Welcome back to another episode of the Humor and the Abject podcast, you cheesemongering, shit-posting screedlers. This is Stefan Lee, the studio manager. Our guest this week is art historian Carrie Doran, the director of Postmasters Gallery in New York City. Kick off your shoes, take a pull of whiskey, and get into the groove, baby. It's time to talk internet art, and the inherent limits of its utopian egalitarianism. Let's turn it over to your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. I'm Ira Glass. Welcome to Jackass. It's episode 50 of the Humor in the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. Did you hear me? I said it's episode 50. Can you even believe it? What a time to have made 50 podcast episodes. To celebrate, I invited Carrie Dorn by the kitchen this week. Carrie is the director at Postmasters Gallery, and she's somebody who's been researching and writing about internet-based art practices for years. She penned an incredible essay called There's No Business Like that contextualizes the conceptual sculptures sold on Etsy by Joshua Citarella and Brad Trammell under the name Ultraviolet Production House, or UVPH. And recently, she had a great piece published by Open Space called Recontextualizing the Cyborg. I'm putting a link to the latter in the episode description, so please give it a read. Thanks a million for listening to Humor in the Abject. Lots of love to each and every one of you. Here's my conversation with Carrie Doran. <laughs> Make sure to fade in after that. Uh, uh, Carrie Doran, welcome to Humor in the Abject. How's Thank your week you. going? Uh, pretty good. Thanks for having me. I guess my week is just starting. Yeah. You're on a gallery schedule, right? Yeah. Today is my Sunday. Today is your Sunday, but mm-hmm. today is my Monday. I don't have a job. so. Well, today's actually Monday. Today's Monday. Yeah. <laughs> One time I tweeted, uh, Friday's my actual Friday because I have a real job. Go fuck yourself or something <laughs> like that. Like, like a bunch of people were mad at me. They're like, you know, people have different schedules. That's really classist. And I was like, oh, fuck off. It's a joke. Making a joke. I'm just saying, I'm making fun of myself for having to go to work every day. But yeah. wait, so you work, um, so you are at Postmasters, I just am. for the listeners, if yes. they don't know. And you are the director? I am. Is that the title? Yeah. Okay. I don't like to get people's titles wrong. I no, know it's that can fine. be a specific thing. I like having a short title. Yeah. Do you yeah. capitalize it when you're referring to it, like in an email, like I'm the director of Postmasters or do you do lowercase? Cause I've um, noticed Alex Toplitsky was talking about this the other day. He was saying, have you noticed that people aren't capitalizing job positions any longer? And I was like, I have. And I stopped doing it cause I thought you weren't supposed to. 
I don't normally say that about myself. So you don't introduce <laughs> you over email. Hello, this is. Hello, I'm Carrie, the director of Postmaster. It's just Gather. in my signature, and it's capitalized in my signature. Well, that makes sense. Is yeah. it the first word in the line of your title below your name? I think it says Carrie Doran, comma director nice. with a capital D. Mm. Yeah, but not just director. No of. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess they know. Yeah. That it's. My my email address is Carrie at postmastersart.com. Just the first so, yeah, name. If anybody That's... wants to submit anything to me, <laughs> if anybody wants, they're they're definitely looking for new artists, and submissions are open. So, please, please contact uh, them as soon as possible. You can CC me on that. It's uh, Sean at humorintheabject dot com. Just because I'd like to see what you send along, I think it would be fun. So let's make sure to send. Please, very, please make my inbox fuller. That's very cash, though, to have just the first name at. I like that, though. My last yeah. job, we had just our first names at the thing. Well, there's only me and two other people that work there. Yeah. So. Can you hear the heater turning on? I can. Okay. So I just like to address it so that if people are listening, they're not like, <laughs> does he not know that that's going on? But it's fine. It's not a big deal. It's kind of like an ASMR thing in the background. I like it. I'm going to pan it back and forth between the earbuds. It um, could just be the intro. It's just that noise. Just the, <laughs> <laughs> well, the cool thing is eventually someone will be listening and they'll stop noticing it, but then it'll turn off and then they'll be like, whoa. It's uh, it's good to have ambient noise. Yeah. I like to have, I like the room sound. I was telling um, Peter Smith, who I interviewed recently, that I liked that the chairs in my kitchen are kind of creaky because it sounds like the beginning of that, um, that Bright Eyes record. <laughs> I'm wide awake it's morning when he's like, <laughs> takes like a sip of coffee and he's like adjusting in a chair. Uh, and then Peter was wearing a Bright Eyes shirt, which was amazing. And I didn't even notice that. Uh, anyway, St. Patrick's Day is coming up this weekend. Do you have oh, any big plans? Wow. <laughs> um, Are you going back to Boston for that? I'm not. I went, I think I went last year. I ran a 5K on St. Patrick's Day Whoa. last year. Uh, Wait, that's only like three miles. It's really short. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds cooler than it is. That's how far I run. That's like only how far I can run. I have like a, like a cap. Like I around hit. the neighborhood? Yeah. Yeah. I can run like, well, not because... Not out of like a physical inability, but out of complete and utter boredom. Mm. Like I can't see. I love running. I'm, I used to be a runner. Yeah. You listen to stuff when you run. I do. I listen to like really, um, high BPM pop music. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I started the way that I got myself to start running was I started listening to true crime podcasts that end in cliffhangers and then I don't let myself listen to it again until I go running again. That's good. That's a good incentive. I just, I've tried listening to podcasts as I ran and it's just too, I need like the energy of the music it's, to keep it's, going. It's, yeah, it's, basically. Yeah. I feel like I would, I feel like I'd act like a real asshole if I was listening to music when I ran just cause I'm already annoying. I feel no, like but the endorphins, <laughs> they make you just happy. And that's so true. you like wave to people and you're yeah. like, hi. That's like, true. Yeah. And the sun is shining. Sometimes I go to the reservoir in Ridgewood. Oh yeah. yeah. That's a cool park. It's really nice. Love that park. What is it? What's the park called? That's next to the reservoir. Is it Highland Park? Maybe. Yeah. But that reservoir is so cool. It's gorgeous. Yeah. It's fun. I like, you can go during different seasons and see different birds. Mm-hmm. I take a lot of pictures of the birds. Cool. Yeah. Are you a bird person? Are you like um, into birds? I wouldn't say I'm an ornithologist <clears throat> or a proper bird watcher, but 
I, I do enjoy birds. That's cool. I feel like my dad was really into birds when he was younger. Maybe not so much anymore, mm. but he was like a bird watcher. I, I feel like old men get into birds. That is true. I didn't make up that thought. Claire no, said no, that the it's other day. totally. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but she was, just she was to like, credit her properly. Well, she was. She was like, why do old men love birds? And I was like, what are you talking? We're not even watching anything. <laughs> to do with yeah. Or like Sarah Ludi, um, she is really into birds okay. and she switched to, I think she like live tweets her birding sessions Whoa! and it's really, I mean, she does a lot of wonderful things, but that's one of my favorite things she does. Sounds calming. Yeah. It sounds like a good thing to read. I started following this Twitter account the other day that it's called like, oh my God, what is it? It's like the Gremlins 2 uh, <laughs> study <laughs> institute. It's just like... <laughs> It's a whole Twitter that's just about like different parts of the sequel to Gremlins and ways that they like, like it's like a really serious account. It has like 10,000 followers. I mean, it's very funny, but it's like they'll be tweeting about like, you know, the problem with Gremlins 2 is that it's sort of satire and parody, um, you know, doesn't translate to 2018 because in, I mean, obviously the tweet's not this long, but basically <laughs> because in Gremlins 2, like one of the jokes is that there's a TV channel that's just people cooking and they're like, which was very funny when gremlins came out, but now there are like 60 of those it's that exist. Those channels, and so yeah. like the joke is lost on contemporary art. It's just like stuff like that where you're like, Hmm. And then it talks about hyper gremlinization, which is like, what is that? I don't remember. <laughs> it's like something <laughs> like, it's something like, you know, Adam courtesy where they want to, um, Adam courtesy. That's funny. Uh, Something about like after Gremlins 2, like then sort of like a post Gremlins world, like once Gremlins happened that there was hyper Gremlinization and other things followed suit. I don't remember, but it's awesome. Mm. People should follow that. It's the Institute for Gremlins 2 studies or something like that. I've never seen Gremlins. Either one? No. First one's a Christmas movie. I I prefer a Muppet Christmas Carol. That's mm. my Christmas movie of choice. Um, let's get down to brass tacks. Here. Yes, down to business. <laughs> uh, a lot of your research and cultural production is around internet-based art and digital platforms. And when did you first start to gravitate towards that stuff? Was were you interested in art and then kind of leaned into the more digital or internet-based side, or were you coming from, or were you introduced to internet art and thereby got into contemporary art? The latter. The latter, for sure. Okay. Um, so you were just well, sort of like a, like a Philistine prior. To... <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is a accurate assessment. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> no, but really, um, so you weren't, you weren't initially, so you came to art through being exposed to like internet based art practices. I did take art history and things like that. Oh, okay. I was an art history major. In undergrad or? Uh, I actually, I, yeah, I had three majors because I felt like you had three majors. What were your three majors? I, <laughs> I studied art history, uh -huh. studio art and anthropology. Whoa. Okay. Because I felt like there was a Western art, um, or the, the non-Western art component of art history was missing mm -hmm. and anthropology for whatever reason, uh, was more inclusive Mm -hmm. And though not necessarily looking at things as art objects, but looking at things as artifacts, it it included more cultures. Um, and also just I liked having both of those approaches, sort of the objective or faux objective with the subjective. Yeah. 
and so you were making work too though you're a yeah, studio art major okay. i was never an artist by any means i became <laughs> a studio art major so i could figure out how to make things that i was writing about okay and that i guess is really unconventional that seems a little yeah that's um, a bit of a roundabout way i'd say well, I just felt like, you know, I was writing a lot about photography and then that sort of led me into um, more media based practices or contemporary media based practices in general. And um, what they call I, it, SFAI new genres, it's something like that. <laughs> but I was reading all these photography books and I was like, I don't even know how this process works like i can read about it but i just felt like it was such a physical thing that needed to be experienced like darkroom work or like yeah so uh, I, I actually learned how to do 19th century processes like van dyke brown and tricolor bichromate and then i was doing, is that I was a thing? not doing daguerreotypes oh, those are really ones? dangerous oh really <laughs> yeah see i don't know anything about it. i took a i took a photo I took like black and white photography in college. Okay. That's, that's about as far as I got. Yeah, I did like black and white silver gelatin. Okay. Um, yeah, daguerreotypes are, there's mercury involved. Oh. So it's pretty dangerous. <laughs> and there was an MFA student uh, who I was friends with. Of course with. there was. Yeah, of who course. Who was using this? No, she process? was making tintypes, which oh, are okay. also dangerous. Oh. So uh, she had like her own special lab, but nobody else was really able to do those sorts of things why was photography what you were kind of hooked on what why did i like photography i guess it was like the critique <laughs> the critique of capitalism okay like postmodern photography theory is very much about critiquing consumerism okay and what by, is, by way of that critiquing capitalism what would postmodern photography be just because i'm a dummy like what's the oh, what's God. do you mean like is the the processes are postmodern or more sort of like the the attitude or the critique or the inquiry that's going on in it has a postmodern vibe to it. Maybe I should amend my statement. It's like postmodern theory and a uh, certain kind of photography were it. happening at the same time got it. in the 80s. That makes sense. And photography served as a good vehicle for a lot of those postmodern theorists to talk about certain things. Okay. Um, even in the 70s, you know, like Roland Barthes talking about the image and the construction of images and how that related to advertising. Uh, and yeah. it would be something that eventually, you know, I don't know that somebody could have, people probably predicted this, but it would become something that it was accessible to virtually everybody too, which right. is kind of interesting. Yeah. Whereas like oil painting is just not going to do that. Right. So it's like this mass medium, both in terms of its dissemination, but yeah, it's accessibility too. That's, I hadn't thought of that. And I guess it has such a, and it was kind of like a, I guess photography too, for a little while was kind of like a little. A little stepchild in the fine art world, like not fully accepted. It was like the foster kid, and they yeah. wouldn't they wouldn't let it in all the way. They wouldn't give it all the love. And then now it's just kind of you know I think we take for granted that it's just part of the art of, world. Yeah, it's one of the one of the ways to make art. But I imagine for all because it comes from such a commercial background or something like that, that or practical background even and scientific. I mean, it was like a scientific instrument before anything. Yeah, uh, the first photographs are really of like of plants mm -hmm. of um things that couldn't move <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah because you have to you gotta wait a really long time to get the mm -hmm. photo to happen yes were there because I, I try to think about like early <clears throat> like net art groups or websites and stuff like that that i was going to um and i i feel like i didn't i wasn't as into it as a lot of other people but was there stuff that you were 
very, very into looking at or people who were making things that you were like, oh, oh, this is this is something that I want to pay a little bit more attention to. I think I was, you know, I was researching art history. I was sort of trying to find my way in that field. I knew I wanted to do something with it. Um, and I think photography became appealing, uh, but it wasn't quite right. And then I took one class with Mark America, who is an early internet artist, and he... Is that the real name? Uh, it's not his real name, okay. no. I think I think he gets it from the Kafka novel. Oh. Yeah. And he introduced me and the whole class to his peers, basically. Oh, wow. Um, early net art. And that was what I was most drawn to at first. And then it sort of opened up this wider world of like contemporary practices and people who were making it then. But I, I felt like there was this relationship between... Um, you know, what I was interested in in photography, but then also the internet just being more familiar to me and what yeah. I had grown up with. And so then they sort of came together. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it just the longer that I was interested in it, the more I kind of reached the present. And then I found out that, you know, these people are like my age and I wanted to have conversations with them and I wanted to you know, we were all drawn to this thing and I wanted to figure out why. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you think that I remember when I first started to hear people talking about internet art and things like that, there was this kind of like, for lack of a better term, like a, a bit of a techno utopianism around it. Like people really thought that it was going to kind of solve a lot of issues of access and representation and other things like that. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways it certainly did, mm -hmm. but I know that you've written about how, um, you know, it, it doesn't just solve the problem. And then a lot of those real world things are only like perpetuated more so just in this other realm. Um, right. So how, how has your kind of, I guess, relationship to it evolved since the beginning when you're really interested in it? You're kind of like, oh, wow, this is this new thing. And I want to blah, blah, blah. Like where, what's that journey like as you start to kind of discover not only the artists that are involved in it, but that that genre of art making ends up a lot of the time replicating the same things that kind of mm -hmm. hoped that this thing would shake up um i guess i was i was a techno utopian in yeah. some sense in that i wanted or i had access to tools and that was um i mean i got involved in art partially because of those tools and i don't know if i would have uh i don't know if i would have found my way to certain things without them yeah so i think that there's a lot of positives to it and I definitely was still writing about that even like five years ago uh just about the radical potential for these things in terms of like a larger political sense but also what it could do to the art world and it was sort of naive because these things have happened before with different media but I think it was just this general sense of hope and people wanted to believe in this thing and like early internet art for instance these people were like oh we're like the new avant-garde and like fuck the market it's like okay well that's like not sustainable it's mm -hmm. just not gonna work <laughs> and you're some of you are gonna have to stop making art or mm -hmm. um some of you are going to be subsumed by this system and so then what does your you know it's like institutional critique in that way yeah yeah um and but then, do you think it did 
Now that you're saying that, though, I mean, you use the word naive, which I think is, I feel like perhaps I was naive about multiple things or this, but, but <laughs> when you get down to, I mean, of course, yes, the, uh, internet art culture has, like I said, like replicated a lot of the same social structures and things like that. But I, I do want to think that in other ways though, it really has changed things and made, and well, of course it changed things, but I mean, <laughs> but it does, it creates a different type of visibility. Like I know about artists that I would have never found out through like a status quo art market kind of, or like art publication type of thing specifically because of it. So, oh, definitely. but I don't, but then I have to ask like, oh, well, but are they getting anything out of, you know, like mm-hmm. me knowing about them? How does that really, does that put food on a table or something? I guess it, the well, economic questions are still there, but it's certainly for representation and like dissemination seems like yeah like the the art world has changed for the better because of it i think uh but a lot of these artists eventually like climb through the ranks and come up become a part of the larger art world and you know a lot of younger or even you know artists our age they don't want to be labeled as internet artists they're just artists yeah um and so i think that it's this weird paradox of like wanting to use this platform to get noticed and um there is more representation than there used to be but then you know it does just fall back into that system it's kind of disheartening though the way that you described like early internet art and like well some of you are going to have to either quit making art or get subsumed by this and start selling things through a regular gallery trader it's not gonna continue it's just like fuck that is that's true. I That's don't like, mean to be so cynical. No, it's not cynical. It's real. I mean, in well, it can absolutely continue, but it's always going to be this weird little fringe thing that people don't take seriously. Right. Um, and unfortunately, in order to kind of have people take something seriously, then it has to have like this. I mean, it's that push and pull, right? Where like you have to get legitimized by certain institutional structures in order for like something to become sustainable. But the whole time you're just like... You're, you, you're doing the thing that you're doing because you don't want to be part of those institutional str- I don't know it's just yeah. it's like you said it's like institutional critique 101 it's but like it's the like, hypocrisy of institutional critique yeah. so yeah <laughs> Who, god damn it somebody made the fucking meme that I <laughs> never made because I was too lazy I was really excited was what like, was it like the phone call is coming from inside the house but it's like oh, the critique no. is coming from in the institution <laughs> and somebody else made it I mean I don't even think I'm definitely not the first person who thought of that but uh-huh. I kept I just couldn't figure out how to structure it visually correctly because it was clunky to say like i was like will people get the critique is coming from inside the institution will they get that as a reference to the call is coming from inside they probably would but i don't know that it's seems like a very now. like freeze de meme yeah fuck. <laughs> <laughs> oh man um so i was thinking when i was kind of preparing for this about uh I guess it was like five or six years, like 2012, probably when I feel like I was contributing a lot to or trying to contribute to net art and specifically like, you know, submitting posts to the jogging. Mm-hmm. Like that was a big as one does. Yeah, that was a big or kind did. of fun thing for me at the time. And the other thing that was interesting about Internet art, and I think maybe I was very uh, had kind of a techno utopianism about this was that it was going to reach people that it would have never reached before. And all these different people would have interest in it and like brad Tremell wrote the accidental audience essay mm-hmm. and this kind of thing and that was part of what was so charming about like art on tumblr was it could go beyond the scope of people looking at it who knew that it was art 
And while that was really exciting, the other thing that was always kind of paradoxical about that was that the people who were the accidental audience who came across it and didn't understand that it was like on like seven layers of irony, my dude, um, <laughs> became the butt of a joke. So mm. it's like egalitarianism was actually like under like there was just an inherent elitism in it too because of like the the ability to look and understand or like know that MacBook Pro is not really in a bathtub. Mm like that kind of stuff and people flipping out and there were all these other weird things to it. So even that utopianism about it, I was just like, Oh God, no, we're actually just making fun of all the normies. Hmm. Aren't we? <laughs> do you feel like it was always like, do you think all the posts were like that? No, I think a lot of it was more, I mean, my, the thing that I liked was trying to, it was like solving a puzzle, like yeah. trying to decide what people would, what people beyond the circle of the people who contributed to it, like what would people grab onto and share and trying to, it was almost like, like trying to figure out a code or like a recipe or something that would that would for sure get like x amount of notes mm -hmm. like it was kind of like a game to be like oh if i put these things and this thing together and like but can i make it sound like it makes sense or like it's a piece of it because the titles were where it was like really that's what was funny was you titled the piece um, right and so i would put things together that i thought would i was like these will get reblogs and i was it was weird because i wasn't concerned about the quality of the thing as an art object it was more about the like novelty of this platform and mm -hmm. trying to play with it and see what would happen yeah and i think that that was when it was at its best because it was really just trying to play into the like the system of the internet in yeah, general yeah. you know it was, it was just like... about like the zeitgeist of like whatever because you could look at one of those things a month later and the thing wouldn't um it, it was so current that mm -hmm. it wouldn't it wouldn't really hold up but that wasn't the point the point was like first 24 hours how far is this gonna go right it um, was just like how clickbaity and viral can this be and i think that is maybe um i would hope maybe a more positive reading of it is like these images are just compelling and like what makes them compelling to a larger group of people yeah absolutely you know if they're they can be one thing in the framework of um this you know, in, in its own way was institutional critique, you know, having like the sort of didactic titles mm -hmm. and like the date and just following that very standard format. But then, you know, it's something that could be funny on its own without that structure. Uh, that's when the posts did the best. Yeah. Yeah. And there were people that understood it, I think, understood the architecture of what people on Tumblr wanted to see and would share in a way that was actually like... Um, kind of like anthropological yeah it was just like more broadly about sort of the visual vernacular of that moment yeah and i don't know if art always considers that so that is sort of interesting too it's like about being compelling to it's almost more populist mm -hmm. um and i don't mean that in like a you know, I guess populism is such a loaded thing right now. Yeah, but, but I mean, no, but it has a, um, I mean, and you wrote about this recently in the piece that you did for open space, which is mm. that, um, and that was called re something, the cyborg contextualizing, re -contextualizing the, cyborg. the cyborg. Um, and <clears throat> in that piece, you talked a little bit about how these pockets of the internet and things like that became these breeding grounds for really like nasty stuff like the alt-right and things like that and i mm -hmm. think that that's <clears throat> something that's kind of funny about 
the vernacular of the jogging or something like that is a lot of it was based on this kind of visual vocabulary that was used by the far right mm-hmm. and uh you know was like i think am i remembering correctly that people on the right like thought that the memes were real and were like sharing <clears throat> memes about like brian from family guy being dead and that having something to do with chemtrails and whatever that was like yeah literally just ed shank and brad Trammell making shit up and just like putting it and people think that it's real but that was um, actually my favorite sort of strain of the jogging was when brad and ed were doing that because they were putting these things i think in like facebook groups yeah like conservative facebook groups right like that. yeah so they weren't just on the jogging and people definitely called them out people were so there were people that believed them but the really like red pill people were like this this is made by somebody who's not a part of this culture okay so yeah. they were they were getting called out that's interesting yeah um but in a way like one of the um one of the strategies i suppose that's come out after trump was elected was like oh well the the right monopolized these platforms and these um these forms of media and mm-hmm. knew how to use them better than the left and not to say that like ed and brad did this but i think they were really onto something when they were trying to they were they were trying to do the same thing but with different ends yeah 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 well i think that people and in a way more niche way well i think what happened in 2016 was it became apparent that the i mean clearly everybody every white liberal in the united states thought that racism was relegated to like you know the podunk areas of this or that and it's uneducated people and it's blah blah blah, and all these things and it's like no it's not it's your fucking kids it's like your teenage son and it's his edgelord buddies and things like that who get into this because it's attractive Mm -hmm. but it also i think it I think it shocked a lot of people because they didn't assume that people who would hold these politics would be like computer literate. Right. And it's just like, man, it's not, it's not like unemployed white people in flyover states who are doing all this stuff. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it's people from who have access to all of the same education. They just are being, they're not, they're not white guilted out of their racism or they don't hide it. Like, cause so many well-meaning liberals are just basically, I mean, they're racist as shit. They're just Definitely. like, they're just like not, <laughs> they're just not shit posting about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they keep it in their head. They, they cross the street, you know? Yes. <laughs> well, it's like a lot of the people on the right were and are super educated, but feeling like they're getting the shaft. Yeah. And so that's like the other reason that. Well, yeah. And if you come from a culture of like where you're centered constantly and then uh, not being centered or something else feels very much like oppression to those people and they can't, I mean, they don't have, they choose not to engage in like empathetic thinking where they can just be like, oh, actually black people saying white people be like this on Twitter is, it doesn't even hold a fucking candle to like what those people deal with every day. Like an inability to kind of like rectify that and feel attacked, Mm -hmm. like to always feel attacked is, yeah, there's like all that. And it's really about, I think so much of it is about like white male impotence. Mm -hmm. Like it's like a, it's like terrified that like your dick isn't right because you're like a shitty white guy. Like it's so rooted in this insane fear of like, 
procreation and like leaving a lineage that's like biologically fucked up and weird i don't know yeah i'm like i want them to talk about that on npr (laughs) (laughs) about about dick size in posting rooms brian lair i would love to hear brian lair talk about um yeah like this friday mayor de blasio comes in to talk about penis size on 4chan (laughs) (laughs) it's just like none of these things are totally surprising because it's no. like hatred against women comes from like oh well she won't sleep with me 100 you know? that's <laughs> literally yes it's all psychosexual i yeah. mean all of it really is and it's just really strange that people are like we can't understand how these guys got like this and it's like because they feel like they don't have a right to conquest the people they want to fuck yeah it's <laughs> all it is there's nothing else going on here like that's where the racism comes from mm-hmm. like because they perceive that there is some kind of otherness about this person that is has a different sexual prowess than them like really that's what it fucking comes down to it's all it all comes down to that like <laughs> that's why they hate women is because they won't fuck them like come on it's that there's no simple. like <laughs> like people are really i mean things are complex but people are no they're animals simple. literally they're just yeah it's yeah. very very simple um but anyways your essay uh <laughs> would you talk a little bit about that like what what were you what were some of the ideas that you're bringing forward in that piece um i mean you talked a little bit in it about uh the concept of the california ideology mm-hmm, the california uh, ideology yeah what is what is that for the listener that is a term that uh, two media theorists, that sounds like the beginning of a joke. <laughs> I have it written down here. Barbrook and Cameron. Yes. <laughs> uh, they, they came up with this term alongside of the term dot-com neoliberalism to, yeah. Savage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're cool dudes. Uh, they came up with these terms to describe the ethos of Silicon Valley that really... Uh, was started by, you know, people who were like into yoga and mm-hmm. going on like, um, what is it called? Like, well, whatever. A silent retreat. Silent retreats. <laughs> and like the, you know, the seventies, like some of the first, um, God, what am I thinking like, of? Well, some like, of like the first a- ashrams oh, were like opened okay in san francisco okay okay and things like this so it's like people who are please fact check well if anybody if (laughs) if carrie's wrong about that you can go fuck yourself it doesn't matter she's (laughs) fucking saying an anecdote but but it's people who if i'm remembering correctly like one of the quotes is it's like people who are like free thinking and free markets yes like that kind of hippie that shitty yeah so it's like people yeah people who are like very like taking acid and doing yoga, but like our business people at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, their progressivism is sort of linked into the progress of their company. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. how well like business and products do. And that early ethos of Silicon Valley is, you know, what we see now with just this like absurd solutionism of yeah. like, there's an app for that. Or, mm-hmm. you know, like reinventing buses. Nobody needs like. <laughs> A solution for so many there's so many yeah. problems that don't need solution or there are many things that don't yes no i know what you're saying there yeah. are many things that don't need to well they're creating solutions for things that aren't problems too that's, that's a better that's, way that's of saying bulk it of, yeah. like the things that exist are just sort of these preposterous like ideas that people come up with and they're like the type of person who would who supports universal basic income but only because they want to automate away everybody's jobs like 
Mm. <laughs> like have a certain there's like a element of socialism in some of what they do but only like you're saying when it has to do with like the progressivism of like their company's like bottom mm-hmm. line and like yeah uh, the bottom making line making money which is pretty wild and so uh and, what was what were you bringing to the article i know that you were talking about kind of like post cyber feminism and could you unpack that a little bit Wow. Sounds like a big... It's a big thing. It's a big thing. I was confused by it, honestly. Like, this manifesto came out maybe a couple of years ago now called the Xeno Feminist Manifesto. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading it or seeing it for the first time and being impressed, being like, wow, this is very cool. I'm excited that this has been published, uh, that people are thinking about this. It's sort of like a contemporary feminism that is thinking about you know, how to orient ourselves online and use tools to our advantage. Um, But the more I read it, I was like, this is very closely linked to, uh, you know, well, they came out and said that it's closely linked to the accelerationist manifesto and so much of the politics hinge on politics of accelerationism. Mm -hmm. And I personally don't understand how that is sustainable. Um, I'm, totally skeptical of accelerationism actually when i was researching for the piece and is uh, real quick am i yeah am i understanding correctly um accelerationism is the is it the belief that um if you just let technology like happen really 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 fucking quickly that it will change everything so radically that like the status quo will be obliterated and so we'll have a new system that's better yeah like everything's gonna be for the better if we just like put all these tools to the ends as fast as possible okay um that's a really bastardized way of putting it but it's sort of like the proletarian revolution but on crack okay um, um, that makes sense. I've, well, just cause I've heard people, but you know, like it's like a joke to be like, well, I'm an accelerationist or something. And I've always been like, it's a term that it took me a while to like understand what, it sounds which scary is why I'm asking. As a term. Even like when people yeah. say it, I'm like, that's, that sounds scary. And so you felt like the, in, <laughs> and it's called the, uh, like the short version is XF manifesto. Is that right? The Z- Z- yeah. Zeno feminist. XF. Yeah. Um, and so you thought that it had a little too much accelerationism in it. Yeah, and I just didn't, there were no directives in it either that I could find that were like, and this is how we implement this, Uh Um, which is fine for a manifesto because it's really just about like staking out a space and making claims and the program potentially follows that. But my bigger concern was um, how xenofeminism and post-cyber feminism were linked. I still honestly don't really understand how they're entirely different i think it's like different groups of people um it's sort of opaque to me and a lot of it has been happening in london so i'm not there to just like talk to people and ask questions uh i've i've tried to send a few emails with not a lot of success and is post cyber feminism then uh am i remembering correctly it's it's a feminism that takes intersectionality as important but also that fluency in digital tools and things like that will Mm -hmm. be like emancipatory for people. Is that right? Correct understanding. Yeah. And it's sort of, so the, the bigger problem with it is that it, uh, in being called post cyber feminism is linking itself to cyber feminism, which is where the problem sort of starts. And so that was what the essay was, I was more interested in the essay was like, uh, 
unpacking the origin so that we can reorient ourselves better right now. And yeah, so cyber feminism took Donna Haraway's concept of the cyborg and was like, oh, well, we can be like this multi-pronged, multi-identity person in cyberspace because Mm -hmm. people can't see what we look like and we can do whatever we want and it's going to be great for everybody. Um, You can't see that I'm a woman or uh, whatever other sort of minority disposition one might have. And again, like Donna Haraway was not a cyber feminist and her usage of the term was much more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. I think that she saw that it could be positive, but also was skeptical. You know, it's just like a nuanced academic term that became more and more decontextualized from its uh, true intentions and was adopted by this group in a way that wasn't really linked to that. Huh, okay. And so at least that's my reading of it. And so to call something post-cyber feminism without addressing that feels um like we're just going to perpetuate the same problems like why have a post anything mm-hmm. um and what are those problems that you feel like it'll reap that it will perpetuate only further just the idea the the techno utopianism you know like thinking that the cyborg is this emancipatory thing uh and thinking that tools can be emancipatory it's like I'm just very skeptical of that. I actually got into like an argument <laughs> with somebody about this the other night because we were talking about like women who code and black girls code. And I think all these programs are great, but I think that they need to be, um, I think that they do need to be approached with some skepticism because it's like as soon as people, as soon as like a large swath of um, minorities learn how to do something, it's just going to be flipped like, yeah. oh, well, that's, that's actually not really a valuable skill set anymore. Absolutely. No, historically that, and also it, it creates a, the really tough thing to think about is like, wow, this is awesome. Like you're, you're going to prepare some people for some like high paying, very specialized jobs and blah, blah, blah. But it's like the more and more people that you prepare to do that, the more that just becomes essentially not specialized. Like, oh God, it's so <laughs> fucked up though. I know, but it's like really frustrating and to try to, it's, it's a lot to hold in your head, both psychologically and emotionally to try to like think about and critique these things mm-hmm. because it's very charged. And it also, you know, depending on one's own lived experience, like does one have the right to say something about, so you know what I mean? It creates, right. it's a very sticky situation. And I think intentionally so because it keeps people from having what are really tough conversations about these types of things or like, or to be able to be skeptical of something without being accused of being like a cynic maybe mm-hmm. does that make sense like, definitely I, feel like... I yeah this is why i was in this argument the other night yeah. because this woman was like coming for me she a white lady yeah <laughs> well you know me too um <laughs> but she was like really coming for me thinking that i was critiquing that people thinks, are learning to code you th- yeah she thinks that you think that people of color shouldn't have access to these I, things because you express skepticism about the larger like neoliberal system that is going to problematize whatever they end up doing anyways like yeah, yeah and the thing that freaks me out more about um about this whole thing not just you know like what you were just saying about it becoming more of a wide widely applied skill set what scares me more is that people are going to learn something hyper specialized and then it's going to become uh outmoded oh yeah yeah and then people are fucked yeah yeah like and not really those skills become obsolete because there's going to be some i mean yeah absolutely i mean people who 
I don't know. I mean, I guess if I guess if you're a coder, you kind of adapt and are constantly learning or something mm-hmm. like that. But it seems like uh, I don't know. There's a lot of risk there too because it might just be like, hey, like I mean, I don't know shit about coding, but I can't imagine <laughs> that it doesn't look radically different than it did 20 years ago. Yeah, like the interfaces that one codes on, right? Yeah, like it has to. Maybe not. I don't know. I've been watching Halt and Catch Fire. <laughs> I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's some fucking show about like <laughs> Dallas in the 1980s when personal computing it was like the dawn of personal computing. Oh, I should watch that. That it, sounds cool. I think you would like. It's a good show. It's okay. like a good show. People liked it and said it was like great. It was on AMC or something. But okay. It's actually very interesting. But they have this kind of like. It's weird. The show. Whoever wrote the show is kind of smart about not treating these people. The treatment of them is not that they're these, like, misunderstood radical geniuses and things like that. Like, they're egotistical, weirdo, like, Disney. I mean, it's it's a it's a cool show, but it has... It's interesting to watch something that's such the near past. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And kind of yeah, the way that it's, like, that they have these <clears throat> basically techno-utopian fantasies about, like, what these things are going to do. And every home is, like... You know, and they're trying to convince some people, like, every home is going to have a computer in 15 years. And they're just like, what are, what are you talking about? And they're like, it's going to be the revolution. We're going to change the way that people like this. And it's all this, like, really, really exciting, like, blah, blah. And it's just like, all it did was, like, micro-shift um, economic power from one group of white men to into another. a different one. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it's 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 a, a frustrating thing, I suppose, for a ton of people. And so, yeah, I understand why you're arguing with somebody who's like, yeah, but they should teach young women to code especially young women of color something like that and it's like okay like and i'm like yes "Yes, sure yes but it's to it is logical to have some critiques of like throwing that at the wall and saying that it's going to stick and just being like oh well this is the solution here we're done here now tech equals good yeah Yeah, and so that's like and then she proceeded to be like she's like do you know how to code oh my god and i was like you should have lied you should have been like yep (laughs) Of course I do. I Wait, know, maybe you do know how. I know I like know. very novice things. Again, like yeah. what we were talking about in do you terms know how to do of Python. Like, do you know what that is? I know what it is, okay. but I don't know how to do it. Um, <laughs> I don't know how to do it either. <laughs> <laughs> I've just heard of it. I bet it's not even impressive. Maybe no, it is. Can't be. I don't know. Um, no, well, but what, like I was talking about with um, like wanting to learn how to do photography. The same was true with uh-huh. coding. Like I'm, I'm definitely not good at it, but I've watched many youtube tutorials well you want to see how the like, sausage is made so yeah. that you're not well so that you're not just sort of like dancing around the outside critiquing something i actually respect that i think that's very interesting because it's kind of like yeah well i mean it's why people don't like critics right because people are just sort of like observing from afar yeah, whereas yeah, yeah. like i really i mean it's it's sort of what i do at the gallery in a way too like i really want to understand the artist's perspective and um I think that I can understand the artist's perspective while still having distance to, to have to form a critique. Yeah. And I think it helps me form a more honest critique if I know what goes into it. Yeah. Yeah. Were you, where, where did you, where did you do your master's? Uh, at the court hold. At the court hold? Yes. Is it, that in? It's a horrible word to court say. Hold? The court hold. It's How somebody's last it? name. Uh, C-O-U-R-T-A-U-L-D. Oh, okay. Cool. And you, what was the teacher that you mentioned to me before that you were studying oh, under? Oh, like, Julian Stalabras. Yeah, like Marxist photo art historian yeah, person. Yeah, he was the one art historian I at watched that a time. talk of his. Did you? He was, yeah, he was, uh, I don't know the, f- 
fuck uploaded this thing, but it looks <laughs> it's a good talk. Uh, but it looks as if it looks as if there's a slide up uh-huh. and that he's going to step in front of it and begin talking any moment, which is very deceiving because it's just a fucking slide for the uh-huh. whole time. And I was waiting and then he started talking. And I was like, God damn, this is just a like, I don't need to be sitting at my computer looking at the screen right now. I can no. just hit play. But no. anyways, it was what a good talk, talk did you watch? Um, Do you remember? Oh, God, I don't remember. It was something about it was like a week ago when you emailed me and mentioned that you had worked with this person. And it was something about... I feel like it was something about the artist as like, uh, like this fantasy position as a laborer mm. or something like how an artist has like a mythology around them that they get to be, uh, not a regular laborer because it's not hyper-specialized. Right. That's exciting, but it's also just like, that's a mythology and it's like, yeah. and you can see where that sort of transfers over into the way that they advertise like the gig economy to us. They make, you know, like, don't be like you fucking, you drink coffee and you're a DJ and you're a wedding photographer and you're this thing. Cause like, what the fuck is a career? Like that's for your parents, you know, like the, just this kind of, and it's yeah, selling, you're a hustler. well, it's selling this really stupid myth to people about like the artist's position as a laborer, which mm-hmm. is like, um, and I know in the, you know, you were, I can't remember which essay you're referencing exactly, but it's in the UV production house essay that you wrote. And mm-hmm. it's the like, why are artists so fucking poor? Yeah. Yeah. Story or whatever. Like there's literally it, a book yeah, called why are artists yeah, poor? It's one of your footnotes. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, God damn it. But yeah, but Bill, I, think, I should say Bill Pohida told me about that book. So okay. well, shout out to Bill. Um, hello, Bill. Um, <laughs> if, uh, but um, yeah, I feel like that's on your mind though a lot is this kind of role of the artist as this like the way that it's presented to people is really kind of romantic, but also neoliberal and also mm-hmm. like very the way that like Fiverr or somebody describes this and I I am not a scholar on this. I don't know as much as you do about this. But when I was writing this thing for Art in America, I talked about how what they're selling is like actually this really antiquated, almost like libertarian idea of what an Mm -hmm. artist is like this self-made blah, 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 which is just like horseshit. Nobody does that. That's not how it works for anybody. But it's still kind of packaged that way. And then artists feel this. I don't know, like they feel an obligation to play that role. It's like embarrassing to admit that they work at like, yeah, that they whatever work like place three jobs and, um, yeah, and it's sort of like People. there's this cliche about like how artists don't talk about their day jobs, uh-huh. you know, or like I remember um because well, you're like a loser if you have like you know what i mean and yeah. if you're not working in your field or something but then it's also it's like embarrassing to work in your field yeah it's like it kind of is like i'm not <laughs> joking like it's kind of embarrassing to like work at a i don't know well i, I really like, working at a college it. is embarrassing I'm sorry to say it. Like, I've done it many bit. times, but it's like a little bit embarrassing. It's yeah. like, oh, really? Are you a teacher there? And you're like, no, I work in the administrative office. Yeah. <laughs> I check out equipment. Yeah, I work at this art school. Like, I clean the lab. <laughs> no, but that's, yeah, that's a weird thing. Um, but I really appreciated your article because I felt like it, uh, the one for Art in America, because I feel like it Because I talked about one of the artists you represent. That's why you appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you found me out. Uh, No, I mean, I think it dovetailed with what I was writing about with Ultraviolet Production House in a really nice way, in a more succinct way. Um, My essay's like 
you know, an art historical tome. No, well, it's an but, essay, though. It's not an article in a fucking right print magazine. It's it's like the essay about a, it's the historicizing essay about a project. Right. Like it's, Thank it's you. biography. Yeah. It's supposed to be long. My favorite thing was when I first posted that and somebody immediately commented TLDR. Oh, that's not even a funny thing to post anymore. I thought it was great, though. I was like, I achieved my goal. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for somebody who's listening who hasn't read that essay, will you talk about, like, what were you, you don't have to, like, anybody can look up UV Production House. It's Brad Tremell and Joshua Citarella. But, but what you were doing to contextualize their project on Etsy mm-hmm. was about much more than just their individual art practices. It was about like working under certain conditions of neoliberalism as an artist. Mm -hmm. And sort of what you were just describing about this like mythology of the artist. And, you know, we went down this road because of the Julian Stalabras talk. Um, I was really compelled by that idea of uh, participating in this economy because we, um, we want to have lives that are meaningful mm-hmm. and I feel like art is one of those few places that that still feels possible. Right. Or that you're not being totally dishonest to yourself. Yeah. Or something, right? Something. Yeah. I mean, I kind of believe it, but then I feel like a schmuck for believing it, you know? Well, and then we reproduce these structures in the most egregious ways. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it's the most unchecked industry. Uh-huh. Yeah. And we're like, and there's no like HR department. There's no, no um, overtime. There's no, so it's like, you can like, you can just like narc on somebody to hyper allergic. Right. <laughs> you can like tweet a lot. <laughs> and we do. <laughs> um, but yeah. it's like, we're, yeah. we, we want something out of our lives and yet somehow, you know, even though we're all the people that have read marks, we're like the ones that are almost most complicit yeah yeah no the irony is thick on that oh yeah i remember god i felt that we did a talk about that wait did you you were at noia house i saw you I at was, house. Yeah. okay i felt really bad afterwards because there was this talk related to that article that i wrote and at one point i like was like what the fuck do you have an art studio for and why are you making paintings if you don't have a show <laughs> lined up and then i was like why did i have to say that out loud like Mike it's Pepe a, was like dying with laughter when a, you said it's that. It's like a dick thing to say, but at the same time, like I really do, but it comes out of, it, it's a dick thing to say and I was trying to be funny, but really it comes out of like a lot of the same stuff that you were talking about in that article is like this, like this, like this, the speculation involved mm-hmm. in being an artist, which is so preposterous and it's not supposed to be about that, but like, let's be fucking honest. It is in New York. And if you're making luxury objects in your fucking studio, you're making them because you want to sell them. Yeah, you're and not you making have them for to. any other fucking you reason. You have to. It's like, of course, you want to sell them, but to have that studio, you have to sell them. Totally, and it's like this fucking what? Yeah, and yeah. so it creates a situation where you try to be a very, very like independent. Like I don't answer to anybody because I'm an artist or something like that. And it's just like you said, like actually, we as artists are often the most like vile participants mm-hmm. in this kind of stuff, and we're cutthroat in a terrible way where we just like will fuck over anybody if yeah, it means that's that neoliberalism. We, if we move a little bit further up the chain. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I remember I used to fucking ask Mike Pepe all the time. I was just like, Mike Pepe, what is neoliberalism? Oh, like no. when I first met him, because that's all he talks about. He, he loves like... to talk about it, but I love to hear him talk about it. He's fucking smart, yeah. but he would like talk about this. And, but I'd heard people use it like, um, like the way the Smurfs use the word Smurf. They just substitute it for other words. And I felt like I wasn't getting a straight answer on what neoliberalism was. And I swear to God, Pepe, like, you know, 
it's either Pepe or Ann Hirsch. One of them said, maybe it was Ann Hirsch, said, oh, it's like porn. Like, you know, when you see it. Ah, and that like, would be an Ann Hirsch thing. Like, yeah. I think she said that. She did say that. But then Mike Pepe also like broke it down in a different way for me. But yeah, it took me a while to wrap my head around because it seems so like it's not that complicated of an idea. But the but to understand where it is it because just the terminology sounds so the terminology the term is, sounds wrong right yeah it's, it's paradoxical yeah. it's very very strange but yeah i don't know that's i mean i'm glad that you're writing about this stuff though and historicizing and i think it's interesting though that you're working in a gallery now because mm-hmm. i know that you told me before that like when you were studying with uh with Stella Julian, Bass, yeah. that this was not a, a path that you saw yourself taking like selling art objects no um, way well, yeah, I was like interested in the net art avant-garde and was like not interested in the market or any anything that had to do with the market I just thought was evil. Yeah, of course. And even uh, before I worked at Postmasters, um, I used to be an archivist there about four years ago. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. No. So I, I actually went to Postmasters because of my research with net art and internet art. And they were the first gallery in New York to show net art in a commercial context. Mm -hmm. And they just kept coming up in my research. I think people forget how long. Oh yeah. 30 years, 33 years, 33 years. Magda has been running postmasters. Yeah. Magda has been like running it. I, yeah. (laughs) I remember the first time I saw it it was in Chelsea and it was when Mm -hmm. I was visiting New York before I lived here. And fuck, I don't remember the artist's name. Crazy. Like, european performance artist who and this was years ago i don't expect you to know who i'm talking about um and there was like a, a cartoon silhouette hole punched out of the wall like he had jumped through it you know like in a cartoon when somebody mm-hmm. jumps through a wall and it like breaks out perfectly just cut hole into the fucking wall of the gallery and it was just open to the street and it was like that all the time it was just like open overnight <laughs> and paulina was working there and i knew paulina through jason Mustin, and i was like yeah what the fuck that's just open at nighttime and she's like She's like, Magda locks everything back in the office. It's okay. Yeah. And I was like, people can just come in here, though. And I was like, this place seems cool. Like, oh, and that God. was right around the time that I met Pauline and like, knew about the gallery. But I was like, oh, this is like a fun place. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a special place, for yeah. sure. It's like one of these places that still feels like um, it just has like that old New York vibe to it while still say staying contemporary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I forget. It was a couple openings ago, but somebody was like this place feels really punk rock and i started laughing because i was like (laughs) it kind of is because they're like you know they're both eastern european immigrants and they just have done everything on a shoestring like very resourcefully and um you know the website that we have is like from 1996 when they probably registered the domain you know wouldn't somebody pay a lot of money to make their website look like that now yeah i was like we don't even need web recorder (laughs) like this is just archive this is a piece of you know, this is a historical artifact. Like, yeah. Um, and yeah, they just have, they've just been incredibly resourceful and reinvented themselves constantly. And it's a sort of amazing thing to have been able to delve through that history and the yeah. slides and reading old press releases and things like this, but now be a part of that future too. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have to reinvent yourself to start selling work? Was that a weird flip for you? I've never sold anybody anything. So, well, uh, that's not true. I've sold like a car. I sold my car once on Craigslist. <laughs> I sold to a 16 year old. I don't necessarily think of myself as a salesperson. And like, that's not what gets me 
going, you know, some people are like, Oh, like, does the sale like excite you? Like well, I'm sure you're, you're closing ex- the deal. No, I'm sure you're excited to help the artist out, but that's besi- the yeah, thing. Like, like you're, that's it. You're doing something for them. That's like really impactful. Yes. Which is probably rewarding. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my, my biggest thing is like, uh, you know, placing things in institutions, which I have had the like incredible, um, what is the word? I guess I'm just incredibly grateful that I've been able to do that. Yeah. And I, you mean like putting something into a collection at like a, a museum or some yeah. other institution so that the artist kind of has this like their work is in a permanent collection kind of thing. Is that right? Yeah. Like, or the, like lending the, stuff. The cultural legacy of yeah. acquisition. Uh-huh. So yeah, I have, I have sold things to museums and that nice. is like, yeah, as I would hope most gallery directors are doing. Yeah. But... Did you sell any, have you sold anything to the Boston MFA? Um, not yet. Okay. Maybe one day. Yeah. When you do, you have to talk, like remind them that you're from Boston from... And, then, and then say something mean to them. <laughs> yeah. When I go to Harvard and I go to Harvard, I'll just have a really hard sales pitch. Oh yeah. You're going to talk there soon, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I am. Yeah. And I guess, you know, I'm talking about sort of that role of being a director who's involved with sales, but also this like neoliberal critique, because I think, um, you know, I'm trying to find solutions too. I'm not just yeah. like, uh, I don't want to just like stand outside the system and be like, wow, the art world's fucked. I'm, I'm trying to place artists in institutions. I'm trying to make sales. I'm trying to find new ways to make sales. Mm-hmm. Um, and just cultivate like a new generation of collectors too, because I think collecting has really changed over the past couple of decades. Yeah. Uh, there's this amazing book that I'm going to blank on the name of, I think it's called like how to be a poor collector. Okay. And it's from the seventies. It's really short. Uh, and it's really, it's by this collector who wasn't like one of the biggest in the day, but pretty substantial. And he just talks about the role of the dealer and how dealers are taking these risks and you need to trust their, trust them. Like they're out there, they're doing the research, they're, running the program and um he is like these are the people that you want to go to when you're building your collection and find dealers that you trust and people's opinions that you trust Mm -hmm. and i think that that is forgotten a lot now um because there are so many galleries and because the art world has just sort of exploded Mm -hmm. but it was so like when I read this book for the first time, I'm like, oh, this guy gets it. Like I want to meet, I want to meet more collectors like this or instill that sort of ethos in newer collectors that like, I'm, I'm doing this because I care about the artist. I'm doing this because I think it's culturally important. And you buying this also affirms that it's culturally important. And you're, you're getting this at a point when it's like the least valuable. It's only going to, accrue in value if i keep doing my job the way i'm doing my job and you care for this object or Mm non-object um (laughs) you know yeah that's cool i like being i'm kind of a poor collector me too i have some i have some art that i'm very proud of from different people yeah it's like who i think are like amazing they're like my favorite artists yeah And, and i don't I mean, of course, in the back of my head, I'm just like, I wonder if this could be worth money or something. But at the same time, it's just like, it's shit that I just, I like to have. Just I just like, like it. having it and it yeah. like, I live with it and it, in, it literally enriches my life. Like it makes me happier to have it mm-hmm. um, and to know that someone made it and 
that we both agree that it was important, like mm-hmm. you're saying, and that I'm caring for it. Right. I think is like really, I mean, it seems like so romantic and kind of this, because people have such a bad taste in their mouth about the art market or something like that. But really to, to purchase something from a, an emerging artist or like a artist who's early in their career is like, it's a big deal and it is an affirmation. Mm-hmm. And people forget that there are people who care deeply about that work that are representing the artists and selling it and things like that. And not everybody's like, a fucking scumbag no i think that there's such a generalization associated with gallery culture or something when people don't really like i don't know like yeah like this like magda's story that's just like that's a that's a a cool story right and has been around like they were in chelsea before chelsea was chelsea right yeah they were like and they moved there and then all of these other places like they're always been a little bit ahead of and I noticed, like, Bordolami opened up right down the street mm-hmm. from, like, where Magda reopened Postmasters and stuff. And, like, Martos isn't too far from there now and mm-hmm. all this stuff. It's like, There's yeah. a lot of places popping up. And, they, yeah, they've always been like that. You know, they were part of the East Village scene in the 80s and then went mm. on to Soho. I was Chelsea. part of the East Village scene in the 80s. Yeah. That's not true. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, when I was an archivist there, that was, that was sort of when my shift... Uh, or my appreciation for galleries formed yeah. because I saw the way that Magda and Tamash worked with artists and that the artist was always first and that it sounds really obvious to most people, but it was sort of an epiphany for me when I was like, Oh, selling this thing enables a practice. Yeah. Period. Yeah. It's huge. And like you said, it's an affirmation for the artist, but also it just keeps somebody going it's like you can pay your rent, you can buy materials, you can do you can do more. Yeah. Um, and I think as so many people who are in the art world, you know, I had an MA from the Courtauld and I didn't really know how galleries worked mm-hmm. until I worked in one and saw yeah. the behind the scenes. Um, you don't tell anybody how anything works. No, it's like the most opaque and there's such a like, oh, we're doing fine. Everything's great. You know, we have a space. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, that's the thing that I am increasingly taking issue with is mm-hmm. the, like the pressure for everybody to act like they're doing fine when it's like when most people are like not fine. Right. And there's no solidarity in that. Yeah. And that's like, I mean, people are terrified of class mm-hmm. and they're terrified. Like, like I'm poor. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm a poor person. <laughs> like, uh, and that's okay. Like, yeah. But to, but the fact that like everybody kind of pretends that they're that they're not or this or that or something. That's and that's when expectations are kind of shifted and molded. And the opacity that you're talking about, it's it, that's when people get disappointed. Mm-hmm. Is because somebody acts like they have their shit together. They don't, and then they never pay you. And then you're just like, what the fuck? And you're like, I really need that money. It's like if you would have just told me that. Yeah, exactly. But like the facade that kind of goes yeah. up. But I think it's, yeah. And I think like as long as people are you know, transparent about that, then everybody, everybody wins. It's like, I appreciate when people are like, okay, I'm really struggling right now, but I'll pay you by this date. Yeah. And it's like, that's so much better than just right, right, like right. ghosting me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, the, oh, and I do want to clarify, like, I know that I'm not impoverished. I know like when oh. I say that I'm poor, I just mean like I can, uh, I can out loud publicly say in solidarity with other people that like, I don't have any fucking money. No. And, and that's okay. I don't have and a like rich I, uncle. And I, I, <laughs> and I understand that. And I just, and I hope that that makes somebody else feel like it's okay to not pretend yeah. like you have 
everything going on. That's all that I mean. I, I'm not making light of abject poverty or people who are actually living impoverished. Like, I lead a relatively charmed life for a poor idiot. So I'm aware of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Um, well, you've got some stuff coming up that you're going to oh. be at RISD. Is that right? I am. I have your be... dates here. Do you? Are so you going to rattle them off? So even if you don't remember them, I can tell I you think... what they are. But uh, no, go for it. You're doing something at the International Center for Photography. I'm going to assume that's not in St. Clown Posse. No. It's the International <laughs> Center for Photography. What's a foam panelist? Oh, foam is a magazine that's based out of Amsterdam. Okay. It's like one of the preeminent photography magazines. Oh, cool. And I have written for them a few times, but this year they've asked me to be a panelist um, at the ICP on March 23rd. Cool. And I don't necessarily know why, because I haven't written them for them in a while, but they, they sort of approached me and were like, you work with emerging artists and they do an issue, uh, every year called foam talent where they find like the, I don't know how many, but the most up and coming young photographers. Mm. And they were sort of just asking me to talk about, you know, how do I how do I find talent, if you will? Yes. Yeah. Was Citarella ever one of their young talents? He was. I bet he was. He was. A little precocious. A few years ago. Quite a little, he's a photographer's photographer, <laughs> but probably really upsets a lot of them. What a screedly little boy. Um, yeah. Uh, so that's on March 23rd. March 23rd. And can people go to that? I hope so. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, people it's can a panel, come. I, I would, guess, yeah. I would like people to come. <laughs> um, and then April 7th, you have an opening at Postmasters. Yes. Uh, with Emilio Bianchique, who I, I did a show with two years ago, maybe three years ago mm-hmm. at Postmasters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was his first New York solo show, but we threw it together in like two weeks and it was primarily video work, which is why we could put it together in two weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he couldn't even come to the opening because he is based out of Argentina. And it was so short notice that the plane tickets were just outrageous. outrageous. <clears throat> so I think I like FaceTimed with him. Um, but this show is going to be in the second gallery space, which, as you know, is the larger of the two. Mm-hmm. And he's going to have sculptures and videos and uh, do some performances. He's actually performing at NADA this coming Friday. Mm. Uh, he has a band called Feats. Feats? Yeah, and it's cool. the first band of feet. It's his feet, and they perform. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Cool. Well, this will come out, I think this is coming out on Sunday, so oh, okay. that'll be in the past. In the past. But... Well, I hope people enjoyed it. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> it was so good. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the 23rd, you're talking at Harvard? I am going to Harvard. I don't uh, I don't know what I'm even talking about yet, <laughs> mm. <laughs> which is, you know, I'm talking about my research and the practice of running the gallery. Uh, and part of the reason I was so grateful to come on is on the show is to like, sort of talk about that and work it out with you because I'm sort of figuring that out too you know no but it's it's something that I think relating your own research and your own politics to the job where you're participating um basically in the art market is is has a bit of that transparency that we're both saying we feel like is lacking Mm -hmm. like you're 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 saying well no yes of course there are bad things about the art market this this and this however I'm in a position where I can do something that affects some positive change and like not not pretend like you don't understand the paradoxes. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. You're just like, yes, no, I work. In, but, you know, you got to 
like if you exist outside the system entirely then it's it's a little bit difficult to to really form any kind of real critique or have any type of impact um yeah and and also it's like i don't know like i always think about the whatever the phrase is like like capitalism is a system and making money doesn't make you a capitalist Mm. like we live in capitalism so make money or fucking die it doesn't make you like a cheerleader for capitalism just right. because you recognize you the economic realities of needing to pay rent and buy food and stuff so yeah um ooh, harvard yeah you should you should do like a do something very boston specific make it your your origin story i yeah what is my origin story i don't know you told me you were born in boston yeah i just like <laughs> That's an interesting thing to think about. I identify with Boston a lot, even though we moved when I was eight, um, just because, I don't know, the place that you spend the time growing up in is just so formative. Yeah, you when know? you were playing stickball in the streets and <laughs> kind of shit. Yeah. <laughs> Going down to the South Shore. Mm-hmm. Southie. Were you a Southie? A I little bit, I don't really yeah. know what that means. That just means you're from South Boston? Well, I'm, I'm from Brockton. Which is a suburb that's south of Boston. Oh, okay. Is that near Braintree? A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> How cool was that, huh? That was good. Um, I'm impressed. Yeah. And then you are going to be at RISD. Mm-hmm. Uh, also in April, date to be confirmed. TBC. Cool. I got to go to RISD a little while ago. How was it? It was fun. I gave a talk in a, um, like this faculty member, Leah Wolf. She's a, a artist printmaker mm-hmm. teaching up there lives in brooklyn but teaches up there uh i gave a talk in a grad student's house like in their living room they got like a that sounds they delightful. got like a portable projector thing like a screen mm-hmm. and brought it in and brought like a little projector and we just had like a bunch of beer and food and we sat in their living room and everybody sat on like couches and on chairs and stuff and i just like showed a bunch of my stuff while we drank beers it was like a really fun lecture that sounds nice i was like this is fantastic i don't even have to stand up yeah just chill and drink a beer it was very fun yeah and then i didn't feel weird about being like oh shoot i didn't put that in here but here let me just look that thing up really quickly it didn't feel that but yeah risdy's risdy's kind of fun yeah clement valla invited me and um we had been talking about doing like you know visiting his class or something and then he's like you should do like a real lecture he's like you should like do the thing in the lecture hall and like i think people would like to learn about this nice um especially with like uh, you know, writing about like UVPH, for instance, um, or even like writing about the the contemporary reading of the cyborg. Like, I think this is a kind of art history that students are really craving. Yeah, yeah. But like the professors aren't necessarily writing about. Mm-hmm. So I hope it's. Uh, well, because it's like a there's a like people who are your and my age are kind of in like a micro generational gap between those students and their and faculty the professors, members. Yeah. Like even younger faculty members who are like in their early 40s or something like that are also just that much more removed from like having this on their mind during formative years. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I remember I didn't have the like I didn't have the Internet until like we got America Online in middle school or something. So I definitely remember a time before it, but also like it was part of my youth and part of my like identity and like growing up and stuff like that. Whereas somebody who's 10 years older than me, like they probably didn't use it until college. Yeah. You know, or something like that. Um, and didn't encounter it as an everyday thing until they're much older or something like that. Yeah. Um, but they're from Gen X and fuck Gen X. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but no, that'll be fun. Uh, that's cool. You're going on like a little speaking tour. A little bit. I, I, two cities, Providence and Boston. Two cities. I <laughs> well, wish and New York. And I, had, New York. I wish I had more time to go to other schools, honestly. It's just really hard to juggle with, yeah. you know, working more than full time. And If any schools are out there listening, I do not work full time. <laughs> uh, I'm very good at giving a talk. I'll make your students laugh. I'll do some studio visits. Yeah. I'll tell a student that it's not their job as an artist to provide answers, but to pose questions. I'll tell them things like that. And I'll tell them that they have to write their own history because if they don't, someone else will write it for them, which is not true because most people won't write your history because you don't matter. But I will tell a student that they should write their own history. Um, But, well, Carrie, that's really exciting. And I'm glad that you're doing this kind of scholarly research and writing about this stuff because, yeah, it's going to be... In the same way that, you know, I was sort of making a joke earlier that photography was like the stepchild of the art world. Like, literally, that's what internet art is. And it's just going to be completely normal in the future. Mm-hmm. And, and just like, yes, that is a way that people make. Th- I mean, everybody that I know is part internet artist anyways now. Yeah. Like, they literally have to be. Yeah. It's just like, I mean, it, it's contemporary art. Like, if you're going to have a contemporary art collection or be a contemporary artist run a contemporary gallery like you just have to consider it yeah and that's a fact mm-hmm. so um yeah it's funny like i i wrote about petra courtright and jeremy bailey and ryan tricartan and these guys in like my undergrad thesis uh-huh. and i got a i got an email from my undergrad a couple months ago being like your thesis has been downloaded the most times <laughs> could we do an interview and i was like what i was like people care about this now I was like, this is so cool. That's rad. And also like all my hours sitting alone in the library have actually, yeah. you know, paid off. No, that's cool. Well, that's good. Yeah. Of course. The, <laughs> of course. Kids want to read about this shit. Like they want, yeah. because there's like, there's not, there isn't really anything of record. I mean, we're in the middle of it. So mm-hmm. it's hard to think about historicizing something while it's happening, but mm-hmm. um, glad that you're doing it. But thank you. Yeah. Carrie, thanks for coming by. Thanks it's for a real having me. Treat to everybody out there uh if you didn't come and see me talk at nada yesterday fuck you for not coming that was rude you should have come i don't know i hope a lot of people are there we're recording this on monday so it's like six days before it's coming out i'm nervous for this week for oh yeah it's art fair week Mm -hmm. you're fucked i'm so fucked (laughs) cool well uh hey everybody uh have a good fucking art week and um while we're making internet art my new sign off for the foreseeable future is Uh, Let's get Mike Peppy painting. (laughs) 